0: Well, good morning uh, from me and the spirit of Liberace. We are (laughs) glad that you are here with the final week of our series as we talk about um, our values. And today we're going to talk about where our values come from, what informs our values. Um, Many of you maybe know this prayer, and if you do, you can say it with me. Uh, Our mother who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And if you're Catholic, the last line, you have no idea because you don't (laughs) pray that line. The Protestants added that. Um, Interesting if you didn't know that, right? It's uh, very interesting that we have different versions of the prayer. But this prayer is very well known and common. Maybe if it wasn't on the screen before me, you probably could have recited half of it or some of it or a lot of it. Uh, It's a very common prayer that's often memorized and internalized for a lot of Christians. And and a similar prayer that I want to share with you today is a prayer out of Deuteronomy 6, um, verses 4 through 6. And it is a prayer that is well known in the Jewish community. And it's it's also a verse that you will recognize today as well. And the Jews pray this twice a day daily with their eyes covered. They don't close their eyes like we do. They cover it with their right hand. Left, right. They cover it with their right hand. And they do this covering in order to not be distracted by anything, to just focus simply on the words that they are saying. But also, the, the words of this prayer are also placed on the doorpost of their homes. And here, here is the, the passage. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. You know that? And they pray that twice a day, and then if, Austin and I, uh, our very first place we moved to when we got to, when we got to New York, uh, it was a very Jewish community, and almost all of the doorposts had this. Do you remember, do you know this, this picture, this image, uh, that's, have you ever seen this on people's doors? kind of just hanging next to their doors. This is very normal, often in the more orthodox, uh, zealous religious communities, uh, but, but many Jews will often have this on their door. Now, inside of that little thing that's on the side of the door, now, if, maybe if you've never seen this, the next time you walk past the door and you see it, you'll be like, oh, I know what that is, is a little tiny scroll, and it's got Deuteronomy 6 in there as a passage. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, and so if you look inside of there, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if you keep reading down in the passage, it says, now, now, now weave this uh, into your hearts and post it on the doorpost of your homes so that you might be reminded, and so that's what they do, and that's why they do it. It is, it, it is central to Judaism, and in many ways, it, I believe it has informed deeply our Christian faith. Now, we take this a step further, right, because we believe, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then we often finish it with, and your neighbor as yourself. Because Jesus, as we're going to talk in our passage today, he added the rest of the part in reference to the values of these being most important. And so today I want us to be able to look at this because as, just as the Lord's Prayer is so central to the Christian faith and is in our own minds, so too this sort of scripture, this sort of passage, it is very central to the Judeo-Christian faith that we embrace today. And I believe deeply it is what informs our beliefs here at Forefront. When we sit down to write our beliefs, we've gotten that question several times throughout uh, this series. It's like, well, what, what informs our values? How do we decide what our values are? Where do those come from? and the answer is they come from love. When we write our values, we ask ourselves, does this value reflect love for God, love for neighbor, love for self? When we revisit them, which forefront has historically revisited the, their values every couple of years to figure out who's missing, what's missing, what are we not seeing? We allow are, are we loving God fully in these values? Are we loving ourselves and God, and people? Well, these values are informed by love. So, I want us to look today at um, Jesus' interaction with this passage as we uh, walk through basically an attack that the Pharisees and Sadducees have on Jesus. You may know in at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? He goes into the desert, he's tempted. At the end of his ministry, he goes through another temptation again, and he goes through the temptation and the testing of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They come with all of these sort of tricks and questions to try to get him, and he doesn't fall into any other traps. Let's look at some of the traps they laid. Matthew 22, it says, Then the Pharisees went out, and they laid plans to trap him with his words. They sent their disciples to him. What is your opinion, they said. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Then he said to them, Go give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. He first asked them to take out a quarter or whatever their coins were at that time, and to look and ask, like, whose face is on that? And he said, Caesar. And he said, fine. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar, and God what is God's. And they were like, That was kind of good. And so they scurried off to their corners, and they came back again. Verse 23. The same day, the Sadducees, who are Sadducee, say there is no resurrection, and they came to him with a question. Verse 24. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up an offspring for him. So basically, they're they're setting the case. They're like, here's the law, and then they paint this scenario. They're like, what if there was this guy, and he had seven brothers, and then this guy married this woman, and then he died. And then his first brother married the wife and took care of the kids. And then that brother died. And so then the next brother also married and took care of the kids and this wife. And then that brother died. And so on and so on until all seven brothers had married this one woman. And then she dies, and she gets to heaven. Who's her man? <laughs> Who's she married to? Which one of the seven? And they're like, this is going to be it. This is where we get Jesus. And he's like, you fools. There's no marriage in heaven. And they're like, oh, I, I guess maybe that makes sense. I, I, I. And they sort of scurry off into their corners. But what's even more interesting about that question that they pose is that the, the beginning of that verse, it says the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. I mean, they didn't. they were a group of religious leaders who didn't believe in the, in, in the afterlife. Pharisees did believe in the afterlife. Sadducees didn't believe in the afterlife. Yet they come to Jesus with a question about the afterlife. Jesus knowing all along, you don't, you don't really have a spirit of curiosity here. You're just trying to get me. And so they go back to their corners again and they come one more time with this passage in verse 34. Hearing all of this, that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? There are 613 commandments in the Torah, and they want Jesus to narrow it down to one. See, there was debate often within the Pharisees and the religious circles uh, and the Sadducees. I guess you could almost think about it like Protestants and Catholics. Uh, Differences in beliefs, differences in theologies, differences in emphasis on uh, traditions and rules and commands. And there was one sect and one argument that said all the laws and all the commandments and whether they're ceremonial or they're ritual or they're moral, they're all equal. They can't be compared against each other. And others would debate and say, no, 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 there are certain things that, are, that trump the others that are more important than the others. And then on top of those over 600 commandments, they created commandments to help people keep the commandments. So it was like, okay, don't work on the Sabbath. Well, what's work? let's create hundreds of rules to determine what work is. And so they decided you cannot look at your reflection in the water because if you look at your reflection in the water and see a flaw in your face, you will want to correct it. And that's work. They created rules for the rules, and they want Jesus in this very moment to sum it all up, tell them the very number one. And Jesus being Jesus is like, let me tell you two. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus enters into this with a response. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second, he says, well, they only wanted one, but he's going to go take a little further. He always loves to break the rules. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's interesting to think um, about the idea of what neighbor means in this context. So for Israelites, neighbor would have been Someone who looked like them, who believed like them, who acted like them, someone that was a part of their cultural identity, a fellow Israelite. They often would have referred to them as neighbors because you would live with people who thought, believed, and acted just like you in close community. That's who was next door. That was your neighbor. There was not a belief, and you can look at Leviticus 19.18 to sort of confirm what, what, what this idea of neighbor was during this time. It, it was simply those who were your kin. It wasn't the opposite. It wasn't the other. It was Jesus who comes and begins to expand our ideas of what neighbor was, right? So Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, love your enemy. And they're like, what? That's not how we've ever practiced things. We kill our enemies. We distance ourselves from our enemies. We other our enemies. And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, right? And and that sort of blows up their whole minds and their ideas of like being able to love and care for people who weren't your people. But then also the people who are not your people caring for you when you didn't ever care for them. And looking past bias and prejudice and dismantling these systems and systemic systems of racism that exist, Jesus calls them to see their neighbor as more than just those who look like them, those who believe like them, those who vote like them. Jesus is asked in this very moment to give one commandment, but he gives two because he realizes that they're both intrinsically tied up in one another and he wants to catch the Pharisees and their religious zealot. They think that the way he's going to answer this is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, right? I mean, that is like the anthem prayer. And they think, and we've got that down. We are so good at following the rules, keeping everything tight and clean and neat and well-ordered. We know how to love God better than anybody. And Jesus says, but you really don't. Because you can't actually love God if you're not loving your neighbors, if you're not loving other people. If you're not loving other people, you're actually not loving me. Jesus basically takes them back and says, listen, it is, it, 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 those things are so intrinsically tied, you are created in my image. And so is everyone else you look around at that looks like you or doesn't look like you. And for that reason, if you can't even love the people who were created in my image, then you don't actually love me. He calls them to see beyond what they thought that they had grasped and understood. He calls them to live differently. And as we know, they were really good at othering people. And Jesus, in this moment, expands their idea of what neighbor means. We know that they were very good at making people feel like they were. Some were the insiders, some were the outsiders. Some were clean, some were unclean. Some were us, some were them. Some we dined with, some we didn't. Some were in good categories and some were in bad categories. And we do the same thing today in our society, but they also did it then. We divide people by race and by gender, by sexual identity, by ability, by social economic status, by notoriety. As Denya highlighted a few weeks ago, we even divide people by immigration status or citizenship status and, and treat people, these migrants who are, who are being brought to our, to our city, we treat them as less or subhuman because of their citizenship status. Or because of their social economic status. And that the same thing existed in our world and in that world. To love God is to love neighbor, and to love neighbor is to love God, Jesus is highlighting. Scripture can truly only be obeyed if you actually observe both, not just one. Someone in the Reconstruct Small Group that meets on Tuesday nights highlighted that one of the reasons, the primary reason, that they come to church on Sunday morning is because it's an opportunity for them to check themselves on if are they really loving themselves? Are they loving God and they love are they loving others well? Every Sunday it's a moment for them to stop, to pause, and to consider those things. So my ask to you is why do you come to church? What motivates you in this space? Maybe some of you would say, Well, it makes me feel good, or it gives me the energy I need for the week. And those are good things. And maybe you say, I really love the worship, or the sermons challenge me, and those are good things. But if they don't move you to also ask how you can love others, then all you're doing is just obeying the first part, loving God, loving yourself. But Jesus is calling us to not be a consumeristic people, but instead to know that this is a transactional relationship, that one hand washes the other that it is not just simply loving God. It is loving God, and it is loving others. Jesus calls us to this as a church. Father Richard Rohr, Franciscan monk, he says it this way, that when we come to faith, we are forever changed by it, by the love. He says, because nothing stays the same once we have found the God within, we become new people. And in doing so, we see everything around us newly too. We become connected to everything, to everyone. We carry the whole world in our hearts, the oppression of all peoples, the suffering of our friends, the burdens of our enemies, the raping of the earth, and the hunger of the starving. The zeal for justice consumes us. Does the zeal for justice consume you? Does the zeal for the care and love of the world and of neighbors, does it consume you? I invite you, if it doesn't, to let it to let it go beyond what evangelical Christianity has taught us as something to just consume, something to be a spectator of, but instead something to be invited into, to be a part of. So the question I want us to consider this morning is, how do we love well? I mean, that sounds really nice. We've probably heard that our whole lives, like love God, love others, love God, love others, right? It's, it's the anthem, it's the song, it's the, it's the drumbeat of our faith. But How? How do I do that? How do I do that well? Well, I think there's some some key issues that that sit at the heart of why we don't do it well. So let's start, just two things I want you to think through. I think, how do we love well? We see ourselves as children of God first, and we have to do that work in here first. The Bible says, love others as you love yourself. Not a lot of us love ourselves very well. And some of it's not our fault. We have in many ways been taught to think and believe certain things about ourselves within our faith and within our society that we have internalized to make us actually hate ourselves. One of the reasons that uh, some of our core theological values or directives here at church that we highlight what we believe about the cross and what we believe about scripture, the reason we call those out specifically is because those are the two primary tools that we often have, have shaped how we think about God and how we think about ourselves and how we think about others. And so how we think about those things matter because they interpret how we will treat ourselves and how we will treat others. How our relationship with God will look like. Let me break it down for you. I was taught in fundamentalism, evangelicalism, that I am inherently evil. I am inherently bad. I am broken, I am flawed, and I am in need of God's grace and forgiveness. I am not, in essence, I am not lovable. I stand up here today... And I've confessed this in the pulpit before, and I'll always have a heavy heart for it. Because I've done unapologetic harm in the churches that I've pastored. When I have stood up in pulpits, when I was an evangelical, and I would tell people with my finger pointing, you deserve nothing but hell, I would say you deserve nothing what about and i would i would repeat it over and over again but god gives you grace but you don't deserve it and i heartbreaks to know that there are people that probably still believe this preacher who stood up and told them that that they really believe that they are not worth the love of god and i've done all i can to try to go back to those broken roads and fill in those potholes But I know that I've caused pain. And I look back at that and I think to myself, if I, an evangelicalism, has taught people that all they deserve is hell and that there's nothing good in them and they're broken and bad and flawed, terrible people, why is it any surprise to me that these same folks who've been taught to believe that, they are inherently evil, don't love themselves, and in effect, they've done a really shoddy job at loving other people. Because, you know, they truly are loving others as much as they love themselves, which is not very much. In the same way, white patriarchal supremacy, it it inherently is ingrained in us as a hierarchy of worth. We are are literally taught within our theological beliefs and ideas that, that there are certain type of people that are good and certain type of people that are bad and other, there are certain people that are God's ideal and certain people who are veering away from that. Black folk are taught that they are the children of Cain. Theological beliefs that you can literally trace back that that's where black people came from, is the rebellion and the murder and the hatred, and and that's where they're from. Theological beliefs that are taught and debated and uplifted in the church, deeply ingrained in people. Women are taught that they are the daughters of Eve, that because they weren't submissive and they didn't listen, and they didn't follow and weren't the helpers, that the whole fall of humanity occurred. And so now you must submit. What self-hatred comes from that message? Queer people are taught that they are the spawn of Sodom. When the true sin, if you look at Sodom, is a sin of nothing but pure violence and evil and inhospitality, and yet we are taught to believe that that is us. That that is the same as loving another human being or choosing to have sex with someone consensually, in a disabled folks are taught that they are disabled because of sin; that somehow God is punishing you or punishing under the third and fourth generation. Ever heard these things? Or that poor folks are poor because they don't have enough faith and they don't just they don't believe enough or they don't give enough. These things have been deeply ingrained in us, not just societally but theologically. And when that happens, you can't love yourself very well. All that you can feel is anger and self-hatred and self-loathing and to feel nothing but unlovable. How does one extend love to the world and to love others when you feel that and carry that about your own humanity? No wonder we do such a shoddy job at times loving people because we've been failed by the church on how to love ourselves because the church has failed to teach us that God loves us, not just because, or in spite of. God loves us because we are created in that image. And we are always God's kids. And nothing anybody ever says, does, or could ever do would ever change that. This is exactly why the, prodigal, why the father had his arms open to the prodigal son before he ever even uttered a word. This is exactly why God meets Adam and Eve in the garden before they ever beckon God. Because God was always there. God never turned God's back or said, your sin's too evil, I can't see you. You turned your back. But God's always been there like a father or a parent with open arms. Why do we value anti-racism and LGBTQ inclusion and the full equality of women in all the full lives and leadership of the ministry of the church? Because... Now you know why. <laughs> because those groups and the many others have been told that they are not loved and beloved. And we want to dismantle that. Yeah. Civil rights leader, longtime activist Ruby Sales defines it this way. She calls it the theology of somebodiness. Can you say that? Turn to somebody and say, somebodiness. Somebody. Say, you're somebody. you're somebody. She says this. She says, the theology and pedagogy of somebodiness that I might be enslaved I might be small within the state, but I'm somebody, not only with God, but with each other and about, and, and about myself. And so the pedagogy and theology of somebodyness. turn and say, somebody. somebody, I am a child of God, and being a child of God, I am essential, and no one, say no one, no one has, the right has the right or the power, or the power to limit, to limit my, ability my ability to be somebody. Nobody. She says, So I grew up in a society where, the, where this theology was so powerful. The white view of black children as being inferior, it never penetrated my being because I was surrounded with the possibility that I could live into my highest capacity and to love myself. How do you love? We do the work in here At the world out there has done to us so that we can transform the world out there the second way i believe that we love well is we see others as children of god we see others as children of god you see jesus he got to know people right he he sat and he dined with the people that he was told do not dine with but here's more than that Jesus didn't just pass them on the streets and pleasantries and pass things out and, oh, that's nice, be blessed, be blessed, touch my hands, touch my robe, touch my garments. No, no, no. He sat and he dined. He heard their stories. He got to know them. He got to know the complexities of the layers of their stories. He got to know what they needed to be loved, and he spoke truth to them when the world had told them they were not worthy. So I invite us as a church to do that. I invite you to to invite people into your story and ask people for permission to be invited into theirs. To dine with people who don't look and think and act and believe and align with you. But to expand your view of neighbor. To expand your view of who you think or you've been taught is good or whole or normal. And to realize as you look around, we all are. Jesus perhaps spent time with the marginalized not just because he loved them, but because perhaps also he wanted to show us religious elite how to love. And so as we learn to do the work of loving ourselves again by experiencing and seeing how God loves us, may we love others in the same way. And if we can do all of that, we can complete that whole circle, not just half of it, just part of it, but the whole thing, I think our world and our beings and our church will be more whole. So when, let me leave you with this question. What are you doing? What are you doing to be intentional to foster your understanding of God's love for you? How are you going deeper into that? How are you dismantling what you've been taught about your somebodyness, so that you can grow in your love for yourself and ultimately then extend that love to others? You close your eyes with me. And hear these words, this song, like a lullaby over your spirit this evening, this morning. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Jesus. Because he first loved me. Church, let Jesus love you. So that you can love yourself and love others as much as you've been loved.